morning, everybody. Uh, there are a lot of familiar faces out here, but for those of you who might be new in the last few years, you might not recognize me. I'm Lisa Hanley. I was on staff here at Highway for over 10 years, up until just a couple years ago, um, but I still volunteer in the youth ministry. Richie can't get rid of me. Um, and now I'm also on our elder board, which we call the Shepherds. So it is good to be with you up here again. It has been a minute. Um, like Jake said, over the last few months, we've been in a series called Stations of the Cross that took a close look at those final days and the experience of Jesus before his death and resurrection, which we celebrated last week. And I was thinking similarly to what Jake described about kind of the what's next moment, how the Gospels focus on the life and the teachings and culminate in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and the resurrection is the pinnacle and the climax of the story and it's more or less the end of the Gospels. And yet, the end of the Gospels is really the beginning of the church. It's the beginning of the last 2,000 years of Christian history. So the end of Jesus' relatively short story of 30-ish years starts a story that has now been going for over 2,000 years. That storytelling, dy storytelling dynamic, where the end of the story is actually the beginning of a much longer one, reminds me of a pretty common storytelling pattern. We see this for just one example of many in almost every romantic comedy, where the entire movie ends in them getting together. Maybe they get married, maybe it's the beginning of even just their relationship, but the end of the movie, the whole story, is oftentimes the beginning of their life together, of that everyday life that J Jake just talked about. And you don't actually know in a movie how the rest of their everyday life and relationship is going to turn out. But based on the movie, most likely you're left with an understanding of what you think or maybe hope it will be like, what you expect it to be like, and most often you're rooting for them. Sometimes in these movies, you'll get maybe like a five-minute epilogue, right? You'll either get a glimpse of the fact that, oh, they do in fact get married, or, oh, that tension with the family does get resolved, because look at them now happily on a vacation. Or you get a glimpse of their life together. So you get a little snapshot, sometimes at the end of the movie, that ties up those loose ends and gives you a glimpse of what's ahead, what their relationship is going to be about. And the gospel writers give us that same five-minute epilogue. And I don't just mean the Book of Acts or the New Testament letters, which are more like entire sequels, whole movies that come after, but we get an epilogue to the story of Jesus. And like many good stories, it connects some dots, it ties up some loose ends, and it gives us a glimpse of what's ahead, what life is going to be like for the characters that we've grown to know and love. And so today, in this week after, I want to turn to Jesus' epilogue, the few moments we see with the risen Jesus after the resurrection. So we're going to be in John chapters 20 and 21 today, and I'm going to cover a decent amount of stories, so in most cases I'll recap, but if you would like to have it open as I kind of weave in and out of the story, that's where we'll be, um, and at times you'll see verses on the screen. So last week on Easter, we heard about Jesus' very first encounter right outside the tomb, which was with Mary. But after this, John tells us about three encounters with the disciples. So the first picks up right where we left off last week, John 20, verses 19 to 20. And you can read along with me on the screen if you like. John says, On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, 
Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now, before we dive further into this interaction, I think it's fun to pause here and wonder, what was that moment like? What was Jesus' posture and demeanor when he comes into a locked room? We can read this so calmly, almost stiffly in the text, but this is a miraculous moment. Now, I work with an organization called Fuller Youth Institute, which creates research and resources and training for youth leaders um, like me. And so I work with a lot of current and former youth leaders like me. And each Monday morning, we have this staff email that we send out, and there's a prompt um, to help us get connected. And the person who sends it out said that this is what he did with his youth group students on Easter. He said, if you were Jesus, how would you get out of the grave? Gifts and memes only. Some of you are like, what are those words you just said? You'll find out soon. But he shared some of his favorites, which were pretty great, and then invited or challenged our staff to do the same. And I actually think many of them are fitting not only for coming out of the tomb, but even for this moment when he first meets the disciples. So, for example, did Jesus come through the door like Cusco from Emperor's New Groove, just busting through that locked door? Or maybe he just stood among them all of a sudden and said, it's wonderful to be back. Or just walking in and saying, it's me. That's all I need to say. Maybe he was a little more subtle with just like a, hi guys, I'm here. Or did he do that thing where you know you're surprising somebody that doesn't know you're coming and you kind of peek around the door and then you're like, ah, here I am, look, I'm here. They do a little that. And then I wonder, when the disciples were overjoyed, what did that look like? Were they doing a little Fresh Prince dance? Maybe the classic Seinfeld dance? It's fun to wonder. Now, my submission for what would Jesus do was more of the calm pastoral approach, because I think they're terrified. John tells us that. So I think he comes in and kind of expects them to be freaking out. says, you seem surprised to see me. Just a calm, let's talk about this. Now, I went with this. This was my submission because Jesus knows his disciples are afraid. Their lives are in danger too. And his first words are, peace be with you. And then as presumably they're inclined to freak out or think he's a vision or a dream or something is going on. I mean, the doors are locked and he's supposed to be dead. He shows them his hands and his side say, I'm not a vision. I'm real. I'm here. Then it clicks into place, and the disciples were overjoyed. And it's fun to speculate those first miraculous moments of that incredible reunion. But look what else Jesus does in that first appearance. In verse 21 to 23, Jesus again said, they're probably going nuts by now, peace be with you. And as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So just as he promised he would, back in John 14, before he died, he said, Don't worry, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And here he does, in his first appearance, he fulfills that promise. 
He says, I'm sending you back out, but not alone. I'm equipping you to carry on this work that I began. God's presence, God's very spirit is with and upon them to go out and keep the story going, to keep doing what he has started and made possible. And it's striking to me that here in particular in John 20, he calls out the power to forgive in particular. That what Jesus has done for all, what they have just witnessed through his death and resurrection, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now his disciples by the power of the Spirit can go and continue that ministry of forgiveness and mercy for everyone. That's our first encounter. And then John takes us straight into the second one. In verses 24 to 29, we see that the first group of disciples, understandably, is going around saying, you won't believe we just saw Jesus is back. But not everyone believes. And this is where we get the famous or infamous passage of Thomas, who I think kind of unfairly gets nicknamed Doubting Thomas, with whom I so greatly empathize. And by the way, in Luke's gospel, they all doubt and need to see his hands and feet. Just saying. But it makes sense because really how many of us in that position would say, guys, look, I know you really wish you saw him. We wish he was here, but he's gone. We watched it happen. It's over. I can't believe it either, but that's just your grief. That's you wishing you saw him. We have to move on and figure something else out. So Thomas says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So verse 26 to 27 continues the story. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. A week later? And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, again, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Okay, a week later, I have some mixed feelings about that, to be honest. I mean, I don't know what Jesus was doing. Nobody tells us. But at the very least, we have to pause at those three little words and imagine how much more solidified would their doubt have been. Right? For a week, they're saying, Jesus is back, and they're going, then where is he? If you had allowed yourself, if these disciples had allowed themselves even a glimmer of hope, maybe, maybe they really did see him. Maybe they're right. With each passing day, I've got to believe that hope dimmed and dimmed and dimmed. Because if he's back, then why isn't he here? And yet, a week later, here he is. So when Jesus does appear, he meets Thomas where he is. And I don't read this as a rebuke, but rather that he names and acknowledges his doubts and shows him what he needs to see. He says, I'm here. You can see it. Here's the assurance you asked for. Believe me. Trust in me. But we also know that very few of us will get that encounter like Thomas. And so Jesus, or perhaps the gospel writer John, encourages us reading this by saying, Blessed or wonderful news to those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Jesus sees Thomas's doubts. He sees our doubts, and he meets him there, meets us there. He says, reach out. I'm right here. 
Here I am. Believe in me. But throughout this series of Stations on the Cross, we've seen Jesus take blow after blow from the people around him. Abandoned, betrayed, and denied by his closest friends and followers. He's been condemned, arrested, and ultimately crucified by the very people he was trying to serve and love. He was forsaken until the very end. And yet look at his first encounters with his followers. Every step of the way, he is restoring and deepening connection. After all the ways we just saw, he has every reason to be done with them, to give up on them, to rebuke them, to say, why didn't you listen or stick with me? To give up on the people he condemned and crucified. I tried, but you wouldn't listen. Instead, he comes back and he speaks their names, speaks peace, meets their doubts, and offers assurance. He equips them with his very spirit to continue his ministry to go and forgive, to go forgive the people that just chanted, crucify him. And in our third and final encounter, we see this all in one story. An invitation to relationship, a repair of damage that has been done, and a call to follow the way of Jesus again. That's not right. The third and final story brings us to John 21, the final pages of this epilogue, which is in so many ways the beginning, not the end of the story. Now, this passage in John 21 could, again, like most of these that I'm running through, be a few sermons, but let me recap. John named several disciples, including Peter and, quote-unquote, the disciple Jesus loved, a.k.a. John, and they go out fishing together, which is what they used to do before they followed Jesus. But they don't catch anything all night. So then, early in the morning, after a night of hard work and no fish, Jesus stands on the shore and asks them about this and says, why don't you try the net on the other side of the boat? Now, despite being professional fishermen who have just been fishing all night and presumably know what they're doing, they don't get defensive or argue with this stranger because they don't actually know who he is yet. They just do it. And then their nets are full to the point of bursting, but not quite. At that moment, John recognizes Jesus and declares, it's the Lord, at which point good old enthusiastic Peter puts some clothes back on, jumps in the water, and swims to greet Jesus in the shore. Sounds like that first encounter at John 20, right? John sees him, and Peter runs to him. And then when the rest of them come in on the boat, they see Jesus cooking some fish over a fire with bread. And I'll pick up the story at verse 10. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore, and it was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. In this beautiful, sacred moment, they simply eat and commune together. They don't ask questions yet, they just have breakfast. 
pause and think about what that tells us about the character and ministry of Jesus. That upon this miraculous return, this profound moment that has just happened in his death and resurrection, not only does he not leave his disciples because of their betrayal, or immediately launch into rebuke, or even start teaching and explaining everything like he did before they died. He died. But instead, this most holy and supernatural divine encounter with the risen Jesus is fish and bread. It's breakfast. It's the beginning of a new day. And I find this so profound. I love that this is Jesus' last stop in the gospel accounts. Because his invitation here is to simply be together by doing something really ordinary like eating fish and bread. A simple meal together can be so profound. It can be holy. In fact, we have done whole sermon series on the power and significance of meals in Jesus' life and ministry. And that's particularly because in Jesus' time, Meals were this clear signal about your societal status and who you aligned yourself with. And so, of course, Jesus is always breaking all the rules. But I think that even on a basic level, especially now, we can appreciate and remember the significance of sharing a meal. We often half-jokingly say that food or meals is highway's fifth core value. And yet, honestly, after two years of not having that available, and beginning to experience it again, I've been reminded why that's only half a joke. Because we eat multiple times a day, every single day, it's really easy to overlook the sacredness of a shared meal, how profound it can be. But there's nothing like losing something to make you appreciate it and see it with new perspective. Certainly, I have felt that each time I've been able to gather with friends or family, even in the last year or so, But in this last week, I have had multiple meals for the first time with this community, and the significance of such an ordinary thing has been striking. That started with last Sunday after our Easter service. As many of you were here, we could host our first church-wide meal in over two years. And it was beautiful. Even as I personally was largely distracted by my two young kids and all of the excitement happening in, Even in my tired parent state, there was a point as I walked through all the tables and I looked at my watch and realized it was already one o'clock, that we'd been here for quite a while. And yet I looked out at the lawn and the buzz and the joy of community was palpable. And then on Tuesday, we had our first in-person shepherd meeting in years, our elder board. And we began it with a meal. And then the whole meeting felt different. And not only because we were gathered in person, though that certainly is in and of itself significant, but also because we could start with that shared connection that just happens more easily over sharing a meal. And then the next day, like Jake said, our youth group hosted the meal at Hotel de Zinc over at our Palo Alto Missional Campus and ate with our guests. And again, the room was so loud with laughter and storytelling that sometimes I could barely hear the person next to me. There were several moments when I actually wasn't really talking to anybody, I wasn't in a conversation, but I would just look around and I was watching our middle school and our high school students talking with each other and with our unsheltered friends, enjoying tacos and connecting over things that were both really random and also significant. And again, it was truly beautiful. 
It was holy. And I know I'm not alone in that because as we left, many of our guests asked, please come back. Can you please come back and visit? This was so fun. Even last night, newcomers gathered. And I wasn't part of this meal, but again, I heard this same experience that immediately there was connection and buzz and joy of being together. And in all of these moments as they're happening, it's so easy to say, it's just a meal. We were just hanging out. We were talking about nothing. But that's why I love this encounter with Jesus. It was just breakfast. It was just fish, just bread. But what a reminder that we can experience and find the sacred, that we can find Jesus in the most ordinary things of life, that he's right there. And I love this reminder that in so many ways, following Jesus can be so simple. It's so accessible. I think too often, we make following Jesus a lot more complicated than it needs to be. Too often, we act as if there are all these hoops to get through to get to Jesus. I need to have all of these practices or habits or do all these things in place before I can go to church or reconnect with Jesus or talk to other people. I need to clean up all these parts of my life or at least kind of sweep it into the closet so nobody else can see. I need to look a certain way. I need to act a certain way. I have to sound a certain way. I need to know these things or understand these concepts or these passages or have these language. (laughs) I need to figure out all these questions. I can't go to Jesus when I'm doubting his very presence. The list can be endless. The barriers we set up for ourselves internally and externally, the ways we make it complicated to get to Jesus. And yet look at these final moments. What does the epilogue tell us about the story of Jesus? He goes to the disciples exactly where they are. He speaks peace right into their grief and their fear. He sees and responds and brings assurance to their doubts. He invites them to relationship, which is as simple as just come and have breakfast. But let's not be mistaken, simple does not always mean easy. Being with Jesus is as simple and as seemingly ordinary as a meal, and Jesus warns us that it has challenges, that there is cost. It's not the kind of challenges that so often we, or in his day, the religious leaders would put into place, not the challenges where you have to look or act or be a certain way in order to get accepted and fit in, but challenges that come with living out Jesus' way of radical love and forgiveness and mercy for everyone. Jesus made it really simple when he distilled it down to the greatest commandment for his followers that everything hangs on this. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. It's that simple at the end of the day. And it's that hard. What we are so often tempted to downplay is that this love of God and neighbor as self is countercultural. It's a love that is sacrificially loving and it will not always be easy or applauded. Because to truly follow the way of Jesus, to truly live out his kind of love, is to follow the way that led to the cross. And as author Barbara Brown Taylor once put it, 
I want to stop about a day short of following Jesus all the way. And so fittingly, that loving and simple yet deeply challenging invitation is how our story with Jesus ends and how the story of the church begins. Once they finish eating, Jesus turns to Peter and offers this invitation. Now remember for context, in Jesus' final moments, despite all Peter's previous protestations that he would never deny Jesus, he does in fact deny knowing Jesus three times while Jesus is being tried and killed. And once again, Jesus doesn't give up on Peter because of this, but he's also not just going to let it slide and ignore it. Because true forgiveness, that forgiveness that he instilled in his disciples in his first moment, that requires confronting and then releasing the wrong that has been done. So Jesus confronts Peter's threefold denial by asking him three times if he loves him. To which each time Peter says, yes, Jesus, you know that I love you. And each time Jesus responds, then feed my sheep then take care of my lambs. John says Peter was hurt at the third asking, this potent, painful reminder of his own threefold denial. Threefold, which in those days signified an agreement or contract, made it solid. And yet Jesus doesn't do this three times just to shame Peter. Remember how you denied me three times? But he's doing this because with each Ask. He's rewriting the story of Jesus' denial. He's giving Peter a new story, each time forgiving and offering a new invitation. Because by a fire at night, Peter had denied the Lord he loves. And now by a fire on a new day in the morning, he gets to declare a new commitment. To take care of Jesus' sheep, to carry on his teachings and ministry to love his people and guide them in the way. So this final moment encapsulates for me that following Jesus is as simple as gathering over a meal, and it is as challenging as admitting our mistakes and selflessly loving and caring for others in the way of Jesus. Or as we remember each week, it is as simple as bread and wine. And it is as costly as a body broken and bloodshed. As the band comes back up, and before we too will come together around those ordinary and yet holy symbols in the act of eating bread and taking juice or wine, I want to invite each of us to a moment of stillness to ask what might Jesus be saying to us in this moment as his followers? So I invite you to close your eyes, to settle into a posture of prayer, and as I speak some of the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples in these final moments, listen for what Jesus might be saying to you. And he might speak through a way that your body responds, whether there's a release or maybe your body tightens as something hits a nerve. Notice what emotions come, what your thoughts turn to what words linger long in your mind. So as Jesus said to his disciples, this morning does he also say to you, your name, 
Peace be with you. I am sending you. Receive the Holy Spirit. See my hands reach out. Doubt no more and believe. Wonderful news to those who have not seen and yet have believed. Come and have breakfast. Do you love me? Take care of my sheep. May we hear and respond to Jesus' invitation to each of us, whatever that may be. Amen.